It's called a praise chorus. Some people refer to their little short songs, kind of hymn wannabes that are very short. And uh, that's a fairly recent development. But long, long ago, some, something similar existed. Short little choruses. They were called Gregorian chants. We don't do those. Um, and in between, there's a guy named Kurt Kaiser. He preceded praise choruses and came after Gregorian chants, a lot closer to the choruses. And he wrote a little ditty that some of you are familiar with that goes like this. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Now, Kurt intended it as a declaration. But what we want to do today and over the next couple of weeks is turn it into a question. How does God love you and me? We've seen over the last month that our God is our maker. He's our redeemer. He is our father. And as a result of that, he is supremely lovable. It is our great privilege and joy to be made to love, to be made for loving this God. What we're going to do over the next three weeks is look at a companion truth that shows that our God is not only supremely lovable, but he is supremely loving even towards us. Now, towards that end, I have enlisted uh, a handful of budding young theologians to enlighten us on the nature of love. For instance, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, and then he wears it every day. <laughs> Noel, age seven. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne, and they go out and smell each other. That's from Carl, age five. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs, says Chrissy, age six. Danny, age seven, says love is when mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. Right. Um, Elaine, age five, love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken. Bobby, eight years old, says, love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. And last, there's a little guy named Max. He's five years old, and he says, God could have said magic words to make the nails fall off the cross, but he didn't. That's love. A little five-year-old Max sounds an awful lot like the great apostle John who says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what we want to think about today, the love of God for us. Oh, how he loves you and me. Let's pray before we do that, all right? Father, ready our hearts and minds to receive this great, core, glorious truth about you that you are the lover of our souls. Help us, help me, Lord, to be useful in your hands. Give us hearts and minds and lives ready to receive and welcome this. Pray in Christ's name, amen. So it was after Valentine's Day when uh, the Armstrongs, Bob and Pamela, realized something was wrong with their kitten 
Elvis. Um, he refused to eat his treats at night, generally lethargic during the day. And when Bob and Pamela took Elvis to the vet, blood test shows that his kidneys were failing due to poison in one of the plants that was in the bouquet Bob had given Pamela for Valentine's Day. But the Armstrongs, who rescued Elvis after he had been abandoned, would spare no expense to save their pet, so they took Elvis <clears throat> to the renal transplant program at Penn School of Veterinary Medicine. For the next month, the Armstrongs drove Elvis two hours each way Two hours each way, three times a week for dialysis treatment. At the end of the month, a team of veterinarians at the Penn School completed a kidney transplant for Elvis. Bob says, we practically lived at the ICU. They also practically spent $15,000 on the surgery and dialysis. Pamela says, we have friends who think we're crazy to do this for a cat, but Elvis was worth it to us. Now, when you hear that story, one thing becomes clear. Their friends were right. The Armstrongs are crazy. Okay? $15,000. Uh, two hours each way. Um, but there's another thing that's evident as well, and that is that Bob and Pamela really love Elvis the cat. How do we know that? We know that because of the sacrifice they gladly made for him. Whatever you might say about the Armstrongs, we would say they love their cat. Five-year-old Max and the Apostle John would encourage us today that God loves like that. He loves us like that. Better, this is but a pale reflection and shadow of how God loves us. This is what I want you to grasp today. God loves you sacrificially. That's, that's how he loves you and me. We're going to look at two main verses today, two main passages from the book of 1 John. So if you want to open in your Bibles there, we'll start in 1 John 4 and then also a verse in 1 John 3. John writes in 1 John 4 verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be their propitiation for our sins. So John here tells us straight up, okay, this is how the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how we are loved by God. This is how we know we are loved by God. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, he says. John says that even the sending, the Father's sending of the Son into the world, Jesus becoming a man and dwelling among us, we celebrated it at Christmas. We call it the incarnation. 
God become a man. Even that sending is an expression of love for us, John says. And I want to add that it's an expression of God's sacrificial love for us. We don't often think of Christmas and sacrifice in the same sentence, but for Christ to come to leave heaven and come to earth among us as a man, the Bible uses the language of sacrifice to describe that, of a great giving up of position and honor. Perhaps most famously, Philippians 2 talks about it. It says, um, it urges us to have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul writes similarly elsewhere. He says, can you, thank you, says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, I would say, in the incarnation, he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Leaving the glory of heaven, coming to our dusty little planet and becoming one of us. He left riches and became poor. Sam Storms describes the sacrifice of the incarnation this way. He says, he was conceived by the union of divine grace and human disgrace. The king of kings was found sleeping in a cow pen. The creator of oceans and seas and rivers was afloat in the womb of his mother. The son of God was reduced to sucking his thumb. The Alpha and the Omega was learning his ABCs. He who was once surrounded by the glorious stereophonic praise of adoring angels now hears the lowing of cattle, the bleeding of sheep, the stammering of bewildered shepherds. He who spoke the universe into being now coos and cries, unable to utter a word. Omniscient deity is now learning to count his toes. From the robes of eternal glory to the rags of swaddling clothes, the omnipresent spirit whose being fills the galaxies is now confined to the womb of a present girl, of peasant girl. Infinite power is now learning how to crawl. Forgoing the riches of heaven, Jesus came to earth literally among the poor such that even his sending, the incarnation, was an act on his behalf of sacrificial love for us. It's an act of love for us. It was for you that he became poor. Now, if we look back at our verses again, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And then he gives us another demonstration of God's love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation 
for our sins. It's not exactly an everyday word. You don't, you don't hear or use this word. I can't remember the last time in normal conversation at the food lion, I used the word propitiation. Right? But it's a word of remarkable depth concerning the love of Christ for us. And I'm gonna, I want to invite some people who are way smarter than me to help us with this. At some point, I'm going to quote a theologian quoting a theologian. So that's how deep we're going to go. So stay with me. It's worth it. This is how much the Father and the Son love you. Fred Sanders is a theologian, and he says this about the word propitiation. He says, propitiation is one of those five-syllable theological words that tend to break up polite parties. It's an ancient word, propitiation, which we as Christians have in common with other world religions. To propitiate a god is to offer a sacrifice that turns aside the god's wrath. Anyone who believes in a god knows that they need some way to stay on the friendly side of that god. So they give gifts to the god to serve in the temple or give alms. And if the god is angry with them, they pay a price or make a sacrifice or find some way to soothe the god's anger. They propitiate him. Now he says, this description may conjure up images of animistic tribes cravenly placating their volcano gods by tossing in victims. And as a result, some modern Christians have argued that whatever the Old Testament may have been about, the New Testament can't possibly have anything to do with propitiation. But, he says, the fact is, the idea that God's wrath must be turned aside by a sacrifice is very much a New Testament idea. As John Stott argued, the Christian doctrine of propitiation is totally different from pagan or animistic superstition. See, in pagan propitiation... The gods need to be propitiated because they are grumpy and capricious. They don't care much about humans except when something makes them angry, and then they smite. It's up to humans to get busy doing the propitiating, to make up for whatever they've done that angered the gods. The humans find something that the gods like, sweets or meat or pain or blood, and offer it as a bribe to calm down their wrathful deities. But for us as Christians, propitiation of our God takes a very, very different shape. John Stott summarized it by saying, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Propitiation is God's work, and it is an act of love on our behalf. Propitiation in Christianity, performed by the triune God, is an act of sacrificial love to rescue us from the wrath of God. Propitiation asserts that on the cross, what Jesus endured there for us was not just, if I can say just, not just physical agony, but he endured relational agony. When he cries out on the cross, right, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to his father? The answer to that question in part is he is forsaken because he is bearing the sins of the world and the wrath of God upon those sins. 
Now, if you look back to some of the sticky pages of your Bible, some of those little prophets that you don't read very often, one of them, his name is Nahum. And this is what he says about God. This is how he describes God at one point. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The scriptures, and we could load up many, many more, are clear that God feels wrath, has wrath towards sin and evil. And this can be really hard for us to embrace because God is love, right? How can there be room in a God who is love for something like this furious wrath? And one, of my, one of my favorite writers, his name is Michael Reeves, really helps me. He puts it like this. He says, like God's holiness then, his wrath is not something that sits awkwardly next to his love, nor is it something unrelated to his love. He says, God is angry at evil because he loves. Isaiah speaks of the outpouring of God's wrath as his strange work and his alien task in Isaiah 28. Because it is not that God is naturally angry, but that evil provokes him. In his pure love, God cannot tolerate evil. So God's anger at evil from Genesis 3 onward is a new thing. It is how the God who is love responds to evil. Okay, and then this is what I warned you about. Now, theologian Michael Reeves quotes another theologian named Miroslav Volf, which you know he was born to be a theologian with a name like Miroslav Volf. Listen to what he says. It's very insightful. He's, he's from the former Yugoslavia. And he says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature, and that's exactly, he says, why God is wrathful against some of them. He says, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the, in the former Yugoslavia, the region of which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And he says, and I could not Im imagine God not being angry. Or think, he says, of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death with machetes in 100 days. 800,000 people in 100 days. He said, how did God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to con condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? 
said, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. He says, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Again, the, the scriptures are clear that God has wrath for sin and evil and for his enemies. And scripture is also clear that you and I were those enemies. The, the Apostle Paul, he uses that description of us when he writes in Romans chapter 5, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received we who were enemies have now received, through the Lord Jesus Christ, reconciliation. Because Jesus bore God's anger against our sin. Because he satisfied the just wrath of God for us, we are no longer enemies. We are adopted sons and daughters. Now, uh, I, I look really hard for illustrations in my sermons to help you stay awake, okay? Let's just be honest, all right? Okay? Um, not very many good illustrations on propitiation out there. Um, so I cannibalized one. See if it helps you. It helped me. This is about as close as I can get. The author suggested in the way he used the illustration that we're like a duck hunter, okay, who is hunting with his friend in a wide open barren piece of land in southeastern Georgia. Far away on the horizon, he noticed a cloud of smoke, and soon he could hear the sound of crackling, and a wind came up, and he realized the terrible truth, a brush fire was advancing his way. It was moving so fast that he and his friend could not outrun it, and the hunter began to rifle through his pockets. And then he emptied the contents of his knapsack, and he soon found what he was looking for, a book of matches. To his friend's amazement, he pulled out a match and struck it, and he lit a small fire around the two of them, and soon they were standing in a circle of blackened earth, waiting for the brush fire to come, and they didn't have to wait long. They covered their mouths with their handkerchiefs and braced themselves, and the fire came near and swept over them, but they were completely unhurt. They weren't even touched. Fire would not burn the place where fire had already burned. God's just wrath is like the brush fire. I cannot escape it. But if I stand in a burned-over place where God's anger has already burned its way through, then I will not get hurt. Not a hair of my head will be singed. The death of Christ is that burned-over place. There I huddle, hardly believing yet relieved. Christ's death has satisfied God's wrath. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. J.I. Packer said that the gospel, the good news for Christians, 
can most richly be summarized as adoption through propitiation, what we are talking about today. So think with me about what it must have been like for Jesus on that cross to bear the sins, past, present, and future, of the world. Not just to bear those sins, but to bear the just condemnation of a holy God, His wrath against that evil, the great acts of evil in history. Not just your sins, but your sins and the person sitting behind you and in front of you and me and everyone who lived before me and everyone who will live after. He bore that penalty on the cross. One writer said that it's as though God the Father, the mighty creator, the Lord of the universe, poured out on Jesus the fury of his wrath. Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against it that God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. You know, there are days, I mean, let's be honest, there are days when you really wonder if God loves you. I mean, it's one of those terrible, horrible, no, get, no, bad, no good, very bad days, right? And uh, you just wonder if God really loves you. And on days like that, we look to the manger, to the incarnation. And we look to the cross, to propitiation. And we are assured beyond the shadow of a doubt that God loves us. He has loved us sacrificially. And on those days, we need to call to mind this passage. Right? We need to recite it. And I'd like to invite you to do that with me right now. Let's recite it. Let's read it together. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loves us sacrificially. And John is telling us that these, these big theological doctrines of the incarnation and propitiation are simply ways to describe and bear the love of God to us, especially on our hardest days. He loves us sacrificially. Now, just a page earlier in your Bible, probably, in the third chapter of 1 John, John says something else about this subject. It's very, free, very brief. He says, by this we know love, okay? that he laid down his life for us. That is, that, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Again, John is straight up telling us, this is the shape God's love has taken for you. This is how you know that God loves you. And it's a very short phrase, but i just like us to walk through it bit by bit and understand all that John has loaded into it, all that stands behind this simple phrase, that he laid down his life. He laid it down. It has 
It has a voluntary sense to it, doesn't it? No one took it from him. This was not a begrudging act. In fact, when an act becomes begrudging, it ceases to be loving. I mean, think about it, guys. If you are drugged, kicked, and screaming all the way to the ballet, you don't get any bonus points for that, right? Ladies, if you look at your watch and drum your fingers and roll your eyes and sigh deeply the entire second half, you don't get any bonus points for that. Love, by its very nature, is willing, glad. And this is a common way that Jesus speaks of his sacrifice, this language of willingness. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what? Lays down his life for the sheep. Just a couple verses later, he says it again. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I, what? Lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus laid down his life. No one took it from him. This is no shotgun wedding. This is a voluntary act of love. Jesus was determined to love us. His own words make it plain that this is voluntary. John 10, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. If you read through the gospel accounts, you'll find that Jesus is determined throughout the gospels to go to Jerusalem where he would die. He is determined. The language sounds like this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is to die on the cross, he set his face to go to Jerusalem where he would die. Some of your Bibles, if you have some older ones, may say he set his face like flint. He was determined. No one forced it on him. He didn't go to the cross as an unwilling captive, but as a willing, loving sacrifice. He gave himself up in the garden willingly. Remember, Peter pulls out that sword and he's ready to fight against those who are going to take him to the cross. What does Jesus say? He says, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? We saw in Philippians 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was beyond willing in his love for you. He was unstoppably determined to love you in this way, on that cross. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life. This is what love is like, John says. The greatest act of love is like this because it paid the highest price willingly. The highest price. What he laid down willingly was his life. His sacrifice was not measured in dollars or in minutes the way we measure sacrifice. His was measured in heartbeats. Or the lack thereof. He laid 
down his very life for us. John, as we've seen, called it the greatest act of love. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so it turns out old Kirk Kaiser had it right. He says, Jesus to Calvary did go. His love for mankind to show. Oh, how he loves you and me. You know, when we read this little phrase that he laid down his life for us, that language of laying down sounds really peaceful to us. Sounds Sounds like what most of us want to do later this afternoon. I'm going to go lay down for a bit. I'm just going to take a nap. Jesus lay down his life for us. Nothing could be further than the reality of the cross. Frederick Farrar describes crucifixion this way. He says, the death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of wounds, all intensified up to the point at which they can be endured at all, they can be endured at all but all stopping just short of the point which would give the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. He says the unnatural position of crucifixion made every movement painful. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of burning and raging thirst. One thing he says is clear. The first century executions were not like the modern ones. They did not seek a quick painless death nor the preservation of any measure of dignity for the criminal. On the contrary, they sought an agonizing torture that completely humiliated him. See, embedded in that gentle expression of laying down his life for us is the greatest act of suffering for us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. He did this, he did this for us, which is mind-boggling, that Jesus the Christ the only Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, the beloved Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, the desire of nations, Emmanuel, God with us, the judge of all the earth, the light of the world, the one whose name is above all names, laid down his life for you and for me. For people who are selfish and fearful and deceptive and lustful and faithless and doubting, for people who would betray him and disobey him and dishonor him and question him and disregard him and forget about him. People who would be described as enemies of, of God. He loved us sacrificially with the greatest of costs and the fullness of willingness. Now to make it even more beautiful, that willingness spreads beyond the Son Throughout the persons of the Trinity, the Father was willing in this act of love. The Spirit was willing in this act of love. We've already seen it. If you go back and read 1 John 4, those verses in 1 John 3, you'll see the Father and Son's part. Here's another expression that reveals it. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, 
an expression of the Son's love, but a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God here is the Father. The Son is offering a pleasing, delightful sacrifice to God the Father. The Father is on board with this. He too is our willing lover in this great act of sacrifice for us. We sang about it a couple weeks ago. Um, How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. The Father at the cross is loving us alongside the Son. And so is the Spirit. The Spirit is active in this loving sacrificial act too. In the book of Hebrews, the author is talking about those Old Testament sacrifices, Hebrews 9. He says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Did you notice the spirit in there? That the spirit, through the eternal spirit, Christ's blood is offered without blemish to God the Father. The whole Trinity is involved in this great sacrificial act of love. Do you see it there? The Spirit is actively, willingly involved in Christ's sacrificial death for us, offered to the Father as the wrath-satisfying sacrifice for our sins. Romans 5 says something similar. It says, hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then he goes on to write about how Christ's death on the cross is the great demonstration of the Father's love for us. And there they are again, the whole Trinity. The Spirit pours the love of Christ into our hearts, or the love of the Father into our hearts, demonstrated on the cross of the Son. I love What uh, Michael Reeves says, he says, this is salvation with jam on top, okay? He says, the more Trinitarian the salvation, the sweeter it is. The Trinity, who had been in loving communion throughout all of eternity, are now pouring out their love for you in this sacrifice on your behalf. Oh, how he loves you and me. John tells us back in our 1 John 4 section, he said, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. How do you know this? How do you believe this? Well, for us who live in our day, we know this from the scriptures. We read the scriptures. We recount the promises of the scriptures that teach us the character of God. We go back to 1 John 4 and 1 John 3, and we remind ourselves of that. We memorize them. And when our days are hard and God's love seems distant, we remind ourselves of those. Or or maybe you're joining me in, in that verse that I told you I recite every morning. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, God, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And you need to reread 
the story of his sacrificial death for you. It's not just an Easter story. Reading about the cross, the crucifixion once a year is not enough for you. You should read it at every celebration of the cross and Easter. Then that's Sunday. Every Sunday is the Lord's Day set apart for worship because of Christ's death and resurrection on the third day. Listen to it often. Often read it and reread it. And so that's what I'd like to do as we close our time together today. I would like to read it to you. I would like for you to hear it once again. So in order to do that, I would like you to stand where you are as we close. And I'd like you, as we read the word and the story of Christ's love for you, that you might bow your head and listen attentively in prayer. Okay. Let's go before the Lord and listen to his word. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. 
This is how we know what love is. He laid down his life for us. You are loved beyond question, beyond all doubt. And now that you have heard it again, we want to declare it together. We want to confess it. We want to renew our hope in it. That God does love us sacrificially and willingly. And he's shown it to us by the greatest of costs, the death of his son in our place to bear our sin and the wrath of God. And so we're going we're gonna to confess that together in song. We're going to sing our worship and our thanks to God for his love for us. And for some of you, this may be the very first time that you've welcomed God's love. Let the lyrics of this song be the confession of your heart as it is ours who know him as Father. Let's, let's worship.